What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Clone Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Earlier, last year, on December 30th, uh, 2022, the last day going and rounding up to 2022, Brian Koberger, the lone suspect in the Idaho College State murders case, was arrested uh, by a SWAT team. And we did a little bonus video earlier this week detailing uh, some of the psychological profile that came out regarding his arrest, um, what the cops were looking for versus what he's actually displayed. And we talked some about what his friends, people that knew him, that were acquainted with him, how they would describe him. We got some information about possible motives. Well, today, earlier this morning, they actually released the probable cause affidavit that they used to get a judge to sign that allowed a SWAT team in conjunction with the FBI, Idaho State Police, and the Moscow Police Department to kick down his doors at 3 in the morning on December 30th and arrest that man, bring him into prison where he was uh, staying in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. He's since been extradited, um, flown back to Idaho. He waived his extradition, and he had his hearing this morning, um, his arraignment this morning, where he was appointed a public defender. We're going to pour through some of the details of the probable cause document because... In it, there are some contradictions, discrepancies versus what was believed to be the case as far as what actually happened and um, what actually happened according to the police. Um, and if he, there, there's the believed timeline is essentially this on November 12th, uh, they had six students that were living together. Zaina Kernodal, um, who did live there, she was in a relationship with Ethan Chapin. Mm-hmm. That, that's the guy. Ethan was staying over the night. Yes. The night that the murders took place. And uh, they were situated on the second floor of a three-store dormitory-style apartment-type house. Mm-hmm. Which, if you... We did. We, we ran inside uh, the house and looked on the interior of it. If you're going to college, it was a pretty sweet setup. I mean, they had a whole kitchen. There was three floors, six bedrooms, three bathrooms, I mean, just your ideal situation for where it was located. And I know it's in Idaho. I know that. But Idaho, if you see, if you've seen some of the, uh, the pictures of the college campus and of the surrounding neighborhood, it's a college town. If you've ever been on campus at UCLA, UCLA is this huge, um, campus that's basically a city onto its own. Mm -hmm. Moscow, Idaho, 25,000 residents, 10,000 of those 25,000 are the population of the University of Idaho. And so it's at its heart, basically in the middle of nowhere, you know, this it's not this major metropolitan, which is great, mm-hmm. but it's this self-contained college town where these six young folks were living. Zaina and Ethan uh, were together on the second floor. Kaylee Goncalves, I've been pronouncing her name Gonclaves for the longest time. Goncalves. Goncalves. Kaylee Goncalves, you you didn't mess me. (laughs) Kaylee Goncalves, she was from Concord, California. She moved to Idaho uh, with her family when she was very young. She was in middle school. She was best friends with Madison, who was staying together on the night of the murders on the third floor when everything happened. So 
what was believed to have been happened was they had gone out that night, the six. Uh, they were photographed together around 10 p.m. Kaylee and Madison, they went to a sports bar called the Corner Club. And they were there for a few hours from what everybody had, had talked about. 1 a.m., sometime between 10 a.m., 1 a.m., around 1 a.m., Bethany and Dylan, the other two surviving members of the house, they came back from wherever they were. They went to separate parties, frat parties, sorority parties, who knows? Um, that part of it is not clear, but they got home around 1 a.m. 1.55 a.m. is when Kaylee and Maddie finally get back from that Uber. There was some cell phone. There was some indication from uh, the cell phone data that had come out that between 2.26 a.m. and 2.44 a.m., Kaylee was making phone calls to an ex-boyfriend of hers, a guy named Jack. She called him like six times, um, and she couldn't get a hold of him. So then Maddie tried to call the same guy like a few times, and apparently he wasn't answering the phone. The last phone call placed by either of the two was around 2.52 a.m., and then that was it. That was the last activity, living activity, from any of uh, the six mm -hmm. that we know. At some point... It was speculated between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. This shrouded figure appears in the house. It was speculated that he entered from the second floor sliding glass door. And if you've ever seen pictures of the house, I'll show you guys kind of the layout. Yeah, so this, was, this, uh, this picture right here is the front of the house. Mm -hmm. This door that I'm looking at with the wreath on it, that's the front entrance, the, basically the main entrance. If you're living there, you'd park somewhere in, the, in this driveway, and this front door right here leads to the first floor, and this is where the two surviving occupants, bedroom here, bedroom here, mm -hmm. and that was the layout. Right inside of this door, there is a staircase that goes up into this living room area. This window right here is essentially um, a living room area. So, and in the back, towards the back of the house, is where the kitchen and the entrance to the second story is. And, of course, you can see the third floor of the side of the house. Mm -hmm. So, if you can see the side of the house, this little doorway mm -hmm. area here would be the second entrance. The only other way to get into the house, which leads straight into the kitchen. And if you go into the house, you're right there at one of the bedrooms on the second floor. And they're kind of right next to each other. Presumably, the two, the dating couple, were probably sleeping in the mm -hmm. same room. Matter of fact, they were actually from this affidavit found um, in the same bedroom together. <clears throat> and then, right on the on the entrance of that door was a staircase that goes to the third floor, and then that's where everybody else was. Um, that's what we knew about the case. And now that uh, the affidavit is out, let's go. Let's go through it. So this is what the judge saw when he was signing the warrant to arrest Brian Koberger. Um, it says, on November 13th, 2022, at approximately 4 p.m., Moscow Police Department Sergeant Blaker and I responded to 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho, hereafter the King Road residence, to assist with some security and processing of a crime scene associated with four homicides. Upon our arrival, the Idaho State Police forensic team was on scene and was preparing to begin processing the scene. Uh, MPD Officer Smith, one of the initial responding officers to the incident, advised that he would walk me through the scene. Um, Smith and I entered the King residence through the bottom floor on the north side of the building. Smith and I then walked upstairs to the second floor. Uh, Smith directed me down the hallway to the west bedroom to the second floor, which I later learned 
through Zana's driver's license and other personal longings found on the map or, or on the room, that that was Zana Kernodal, uh, hereafter Kernodal. Uh, just before this room, there was a bathroom door to the south wall of the hallway. As I approached the room, I could see a body later identified as Kernodal's lying on the floor. Kernodal was deceased with wounds which appear to have been caused by an edged weapon. And it's just like this smallish little bedroom, little cozy little nook, uh, not much room for anything, which is confirmed to be, uh, yeah, Zaina's Zaina's bedroom. Um, um, Also in the room was a male later identified as Ethan Chapin. Uh, So they would have, this is where they would have been. Uh, The killer walks straight into this room, uh, and uh, this is where everything begins. Which is odd, because if you go into the... That gives us a little more insight, because if you go into this other hallway, if he did enter from here, all right, from the sliding glass door, if he entered there, uh, just taking a look at where he would have been in the kitchen, the first bedroom he would have been encountered... Uh, would have been, uh, well, it would have been this one, mm-hmm. which is a larger bedroom, which is where I would expect somebody to live there that to have preferred to stay. Um, as you can see, it's got like this little area to put like a study desk or something. It just looks like a, a, a larger room. Yeah, Dylan, interesting. So, and yeah, interesting because in this affidavit, they did talk about uh, Dylan. They, they, they listed her as a DM and they also refer to her as a her. As in, I know that's traditionally a guy's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, ass- I'm assuming based on the, this affidavit that she's a female, but she would have been in the room, which means that only the one person would have been on the first floor. Mm-hmm. The two, the couple sleeping in the other room would have, would, I, I guess, kind of makes sense why they would have been in that room. Uh, Dylan would have been in this room and she actually heard stuff. Um so that's the uh, second floor. And then and if we go up here, up the stairs directly, you'll see the staircase right here. Mm-hmm. And this leads you to the third floor. And uh, this would have been one of the bedrooms, but they were found together. So she must have been in the other one, which would have been this bedroom closest. Yeah, this is where they, they would have found the, the upper vic- uh, victims. I then followed Smith upstairs to the third floor of the residence. The third floor consisted of two bedrooms and one bathroom. The bedroom on the west side of the floor was later determined to be Kaylee Goncalves. Not Goncalves. Goncalves. Um, I later learned from review of Officer Nunez's body cam. Uh, there was a dog in the house, and, and people had talked about that dog. The dog belonged to Goncalves and her boyfriend, Jack Ducower, who was the guy that they were trying to call that night nine times between the two of the uh, between the two of uh, Madison and Kaylee, um, I found out from my interview with Jack on November thirteenth that he and Goncalves shared the dog. Officer Smith then pointed out a small bedroom to be the east side of the third floor. This bathroom shared a wall with Madison Mogan's bedroom, which was situated on the uh, southeast corner of the third floor, which is what we had just looked at. As I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in a single bed in the room. Both Goncalves and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. I later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side. The sheath was later processed and had Kabar, spelled K-A-B-A-R, USMC, United States Marine Corps, Marine Corps Eagle Globe, and another insignia stamped on the inside of it. 
The Idaho State Lab later indicated a single source of trace male DNA left on the bottom snap of the knife sheath. So it was DNA evidence that they got him. But it's not just the DNA. I mean, they tracked this guy and they Mm -hmm. got him dead to rights on this case. Um, As part of the investigation, numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow police department officers, Idaho State police detectives and FBI agents. Two of the interviews included BF and DM, that's Dylan, uh, both BF and DM, BF being Bethany. Uh, I don't, I never heard her, her last name. Uh, they were inside the King residence at the time of the homicides and were roommates to the victims. BF's bedroom was located on the east side of the first floor. So Bethany would have been on the first floor in one of those bedrooms. Based on numerous interviews conducted by MPD officers, ISP detectives and FBI agents, as well as my review of evidence, I have learned the following. So this is the actual official uh, law enforcement version of the timeline of events as they occurred. Goncalves and Mogan were at a local bar, the Corner Club, at 202 North Main Street in Moscow. Goncalves and Mogan can be seen on video footage provided by the Corner Club between 10 p.m. on November 12th and 1.30 a.m. on November 13th. At approximately 1.30 a.m., Goncalves and Mogan can be seen on video at a local food vendor called the Grub Truck. And that's the surveillance footage that we kind of ran through. At 318 South Main Street in downtown Moscow, the Grub Truck live streams video from their food truck on the streaming platform Twitch, which is available for public viewing on their website. The video was captured by law enforcement. A private party reported that he provided a ride to Goncalves and Mogan at approximately 1.56 a.m. Presumably that would have been the the, uh, Uber driver. Mm -hmm. Um, Provided a drive to them to get home around 1.56 a.m. to the King residence. Dylan and Bethany both made statements. They both made statements during interview that indicated the occupants of the King Road residence were at home by 2 a.m., and asleep, or at least in their rooms, by approximately 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Kernodal, that's Zena, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m., which is crazy to mm-hmm. think about. Only because of this new timeline that we're getting. So that if she was awake and she was ordering food at 4 a.m., what would you possibly order at 4 a.m.? McDonald's. No. It couldn't be McDonald's. I mean, I guess. Something that... Like dessert, right? 24 hours. Cause like some kind of Baskin-Robbins, like uh, the Creamery, exactly. Cold Stone. Something that's open 24 hours. Yeah, I don't think... That's why I thought about McDonald's. The ice cream place will be open 24 hours. Something like McDonald's, yeah. Taco Bell. But McDonald's isn't 24 hours, is it? Yes, they are. Bullshit. They are not. There's no way. McDonald's, In Idaho, though? In Idaho? Uh, well... Denny's. Maybe. Yes. Well, there was some kind of, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, 4 a.m., 4 a.m., and um, we got this small window of time between 3 and 5. Anyway, let's continue. <clears throat> All right, so we have her, her Grubhub order, 4 a.m. Dylan uh, stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. Dylan's, and that's the larger bedroom that mm-hmm. we had looked at. Yeah. Uh, Dylan stated that she was awakened at around 4 a.m. by what she stated sounded like Goncalves playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms. And I got to say, I have a largish dog. Um, and when he's jumping around upstairs, 
Um, I, I kind of know the sound. You know, mm -hmm. it's like this big thump. Boom. Just sloppy. Yeah. When he climbs underneath the uh, underneath the bed, he mm. just makes all kinds of noise and you can hear him. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's what... When I hear noises like that, I assume it's a dog. I don't mm -hmm. assume it's like a murder taking exactly. place. And again, there's no indication <laughs> that this is a murder, but or even at that point. But so she's just describing. A short time later, Dylan said she heard what she thought was Goncalves say something to the effect of, there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Cornodal's place showed this could have been Cornodal, as her cell phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok platform at approximately 4.12 a.m. Dylan stated she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. Dylan stated she opened the door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room. Dylan then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. DoorDash food at 4 a.m., approximately uh, somebody in the house at 4, 12 a.m. Um, that's all really close together. Mm -hmm. Around 4, 17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, um, a residence immediately to the southwest of 1120, so a next-door neighbor, uh, picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper, followed by a loud thud. A dog can be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. Do you guys have dogs? Yes. When somebody pulls up to the front of the door, do they immediately start barking? Yes. It's immediate, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So either at 4.12, you know, she's... Uh, Dylan is hearing voices at 417. The dog is barking, at least on the surveillance footage. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the timelines are synchronized. You know, for example, in that surveillance footage, it could have been 417, could have been 412. Mm -hmm. You know, who yeah. knows? But we're in the same ballpark, at least, right? Uh, Dylan stated that she opened the door for a third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. Dylan described the figure as around 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. Did you guys see the picture of Brian Koberger? Yeah. That's basically what he looks yeah, like. Exactly. You know? yes. um, this male walked past Dylan as she stood there in a frozen shock phase. The male walked towards the back sliding glass door. Dylan looked herself... It locked herself in a room after seeing the male. Dylan did not state that she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. How freaking terrifying is that? Imagine what kind of nightmares this girl um, has been experiencing since then, knowing mm -hmm. what happened. And then uh, having that image in her head for the rest of her life, probably. She's probably not sleeping. Jesus Christ. At all. <clears throat> the combination of Dylan's statements to law enforcement... Reviews of forensic downloads of records from Bethany and Dylan's phone and video of a suspect video, as described below, leads investigators to believe the homicide occurred, occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. During the processing of the crime scene, investigators found a latent shoe print. This was located during the second processing of the crime scene by the ISP forensic team. 
by first using a presumptive blood test and then amino black, a protein stain that detects the presence of cellular material. The detected shoe print showed a diamond-shaped pattern. This is consistent with Dylan's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel. So everything's kind of fitting together. A review of footage from multiple videos. Now, this is what gets kind of crazy about how they were able to... They know everything about this guy. Whoever Mm -hmm. this was, I mean, they got his car. Um, Well, I mean, you guys are going to see. They tracked him going there. They even tracked him canvassing the place like months before or weeks before or something Mm -hmm. like that. They got his travel after the murders took place, Mm -hmm. and they got him traveling all the way to Pennsylvania. They even got him recorded as being stopped like a few times prior to that. Um, It's crazy how much information they pulled uh, from this guy. They put together the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So a review of footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of suspect vehicle one. And for our purposes, that's going to be the Hyundai, 2016 Hyundai Elantra, I think it was. That's my car. Is it really? Mine too. <laughs> I mean, it's but a no reliable what? car. I mean. <laughs> you remember it, Omar? The red car I used to have? Yeah, with the stupid pink license plate on it. My truck still has it, but yes. <laughs> okay. No, that's the one. That's how I know it was your car. I just look for the pink license plate. Um, that's what my brother says too. Yeah. So these shinies, the, these sightings show suspect vehicle one making an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residence and then leave via Walenta Drive. Based off my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with a very limited number of vehicles that travel in the area during the early morning hours. Upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that enter and exit this area during this time frame. And um, if you guys saw the area... This is it. So this is the outside. There's nothing over there. There's Mm -hmm. this like dormitory apartment style building, but the people coming over there are are not going to park in the, I mean, they're they're parking up here somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It snakes around over there and then it goes down here where there's more residences. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a residential. Makes sense. It's not next to a, uh, directly next to a um, a sports bar, like a public, wherever. Yeah. So. Excellent point. Who's going to really be going there unless they have a reason to be there because they live there, especially at those hours. And this guy made multiple visits prior and after uh, the incident occurred. So uh, continuing on. So suspect vehicle one can be seen entering the area four time at around 4.04 a.m. It can be seen driving eastbound on King Road, stopping and turning around in front of 500 Queen Road apartment number 52, and then driving back westbound in King Road. When suspect vehicle one is in front of the King Road residence, it appeared to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. This vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen and King Road, where it can be seen completing a three-point turn and then driving eastbound again down Queen Road. They got this all on camera. Mm -hmm. So... Suspect number one, uh, suspect vehicle one is next seen departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Obviously, that would have been uh, after the murder. So between 4.05 to 4.25 seems about accurate. Mm -hmm. The whole murder took place within 20 minutes. Um, By the time he, from the time he goes into the house, murders four people, exits, and and makes his way back to where he lived um, near Pullman, Washington, which is about 10 minutes away, as, Mm -hmm. as we'll see. 
Suspect Vehicle 1 is next observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. Based on my knowledge of the area and review of camera footage is the neighborhood that does not show Suspect Vehicle 1 during the time frame. I believe that Suspect Vehicle 1 likely entered the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive and Conestoga Drive. Palouse River Drive is a southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, the road leads to Pullman, Washington. Pullman, Washington is approximately 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho. Both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns, and people commonly travel back and forth between the two places. Law enforcement officers provided video footage of suspect vehicle one to forensic examiners with the Federal Bureau of Investigation that regularly utilized surveillance footage to identify the year, make, and model. So they got his car, and it goes on to talk about how they identified his car somewhere between the 2011 and 2016 mm-hmm. launch. And the police actually had bulletins, I think, in late November of a image, a stock image of like a 2013 Elantra, oh, which right. is the car that they're looking for. So it's, it's been well known, that vehicle. Investigators were given access to video footage on the Washington State University campus located in Pullman. A review of that video indicated that at approximately 2.44 a.m. on November 13th, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of the white Elantra, known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed on WSU surveillance cameras traveling north on southeast Nevada at Northeast Stadium Way. And at around 2.53 a.m., a white sedan, which is consistent with the description of the white Elantra, known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed traveling on Nevada Street in Pullman, Washington, towards uh, Freeway 270, which connects Pullman to Moscow. The camera footage from Pullman, Washington, was provided by the FBI forensics team. So they got him going to the place, Mm -hmm. and they got him going back. At around 5.25 a.m., a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of sus- suspect vehicle one, was observed on five cameras in Pullman, Washington, and on WSU campus uh, camera. The first camera that recorded the white sedan was located at 1300 Johnson Road in Pullman. The white sedan was observed traveling northbound on Johnson Road. Johnson Road leads directly back to West Palousey River Drive in Moscow, which interconnects with Conestoga Drive. Uh, so they're just tracking his footage, or his footage, his uh, path. On November 25th, so now we're talking about a couple of weeks, and yeah. this is around the time. So it was speculated that around the time that they released the bulletin, that they were mm-hmm. zeroing in on the owner of this car, and they knew good and well, I think, that the the, the owner of the car was in and around the area of the mm-hmm. incident and all this stuff. It's, it's unclear about whether or not they knew all the other stuff, but uh, when they publicly put out that bulletin looking for anybody, the owners of the car, anybody with any knowledge that that was when this guy decided to say, fuck it, I'm getting out of town mm-hmm. and flees to Pennsylvania. I don't know. Maybe he got spooked or whatever, but he was also mm-hmm. a PhD student over at Washington state at, at any rate. So on November 25th, MPD asked where law enforcement agencies or, or asked for them to be on lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra on November 29th at around 12, 28 AM. Washington State University police officer Daniel Tiango queried white Elantras registered at WSU. And as a result of that query, located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate. This vehicle was registered to Brian Koberger, residing at 1630 North Valley Road, an apartment 201 in Pullman, Washington. 
address is approximately three quarters of a mile from the intersection of Stadium Way and Cougar Way. Uh, that same day at around 12.58 a.m., Officer Chris Whitman was looking for the white Hyundai Elantra's uh, located uh, 2015. All right, more, more stuff about the cars, right? Further investigation, including a review of La- Lataw County. I don't know if it's Lataw or Lata. Lataw County Sheriff's Deputy CPL Duke's body cam showed that on August 21st, 2022, Brian Koberger was detained as part of a traffic stop that occurred in Moscow, Idaho, by CPL Drake. At the time, Koberger, who was the sole occupant, was driving a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra with Pennsylvania plate, and they say the license plate number, which was set to expire on November 30th. During the stop, which was recorded via law enforcement body cam, Koberger provided his phone number, which ended with 8458. And that's how they got a cell phone mm. to track the cell phone towers and his of course. whereabouts, right? So on October 14, 2022, Koberger was detained as part of a traffic stop by a WSU police officer. And upon review of that body cam and report of the stop, Koberger was the sole occupant and was driving a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra. If you're wondering why they're so redundant in this report, it's Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you're trying to establish probable cause, that's Mm -hmm. the standard that's required to get an arrest warrant. And which means it has to be more likely than not than what you're investigating is true. And so they're not just going to, it can't just be, oh, he might be. They got to have like hold hard facts. So they're hammering down. Look, we found out this car was in the area. We found the owner of the the vehicle Um, from a traffic stop. We got his cell phone number. And from that cell phone number, we were able to, to, uh, through cell tower um, analysis, Mm -hmm. determine his position of where he was at particular times. And so they establish his method of travel, where exactly he was at specific times and dates when the incident occurred. They're tying all of this in and they're putting it on a silver platter Mm -hmm. for a judge to sign off on his arrest. That's why it's like this. And that's why it's 19 pages long. Because honestly, we could have got this out in like maybe a paragraph, right? But they got to be... Um, so complete, mm-hmm. leave nothing to chance. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they're trying to build a case. Of course. And so not only that, but when this goes to trial, and, and this is definitely going to trial, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. that a little later. Um, but when this does go to trial, you don't want to have a situation like another Casey Anthony where everybody knows or believes that this person committed a murder. Everything's pointing to it, but the state screwed it up because they're, the evidence in the case was weak. Mm-hmm. They thought it was a slam dunk, and it wasn't. Hey, you still got to you got you still got to litigate the case. Mm-hmm. So they don't want this guy. They want to build whatever case they can to make sure they get a conviction. Investigators believe that Koberger is still driving the 2015, and they're saying still past tense, present tense here mm-hmm. because they hadn't arrested him yet. Uh, because his vehicle was captured on December 13th, 2022, by a license plate reader in Loma, Colorado, as he was driving with his dad mm-hmm. from Washington all the way to Pennsylvania. (sighs) Koberger's Elantra was then queried on December 15th by law enforcement in Hancock, Indiana. On December 16th, 2022, at approximately 2.26 p.m., surveillance video showed Koberger's Elantra in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. The sole occupant of the vehicle was a white male whose description was consistent with Koberger. Koberger has family in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. Uh, Based on information provided on the WSU website, Koberger is currently a PhD student in criminology at Washington State University. And there's been a lot of confusion over this. Criminology is not the same thing as forensic studies. Mm -hmm. Two completely different 
fields of study. One's very scientific. The other's more psychological in nature. And so people are saying that, oh, we had all of this knowledge to avoid forensic um, yeah. traces or whatever. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't know. Sh- yeah. The first thing about forensics probably or how they go about or maybe he had some idea, but he probably knew about as much as you and I. Uh, criminology doesn't give you any special knowledge into uh, those areas of study. And so he was a novice and he probably thought he was a lot smarter than he was. Uh, at any rate, um, oh, always. Yeah. So pursuant to records provided by a member of the interview panel for Pullman Police Department, we learned that Koberger's past education included undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. These records show Koberger wrote an essay when he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. So the FBI Mm -hmm. targeted profile about the person who committed these murders long before they knew who Brian Koberger was, um, indicated that he was going to be somewhere between 20 to 40 years old. He was probably going to be unemployed or underemployed. Mm -hmm. Um, He uh, was going to be uh, undereducated or, you know, lack in education, which is not the case with him. He's a freaking PhD Mm -hmm. student. Um, and he was employed as a teaching assistant prior to his teaching assistant position. He was a security guard, um, for some other community college somewhere, which he did that for a few years. Um, they said that he was going to be awkward, socially awkward, mm-hmm. maybe antisocial, um, which kind of sort of fits the profile yes. of him. Um, there's not really much indication that he was antisocial per se. Socially awkward would be the more accurate term mm-hmm. where like he wants to be social, but he just lacks the skills to do it effectively. Mm-hmm. And every time he tries, he's rebuffed or rejected. And because of that constant rejection, probably for an entirety of his life and him being a 28 year old man mm-hmm. would have caused him to lash out. Um, in his profile, it said that he was uh, believed as somebody be somebody that wanted to be physically dominant or sexually dominant or mm-hmm. have this, this anger or rage that was built up from the years of rejection. Mm-hmm. So this is the profile that they're building up. And a lot of that is supported by what's in this affidavit. Mm -hmm. As they're going on, he has, and one of the things in the profile was he was supposed to have a keen interest in law enforcement. And the guy's writing admission essays to the police department over here um, in the fall of 2022, which had been around the time he he killed none of those people, Mm -hmm. allegedly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not looking good for him, is what I would say. But on, on the other hand... I, I caution that a little bit because we're reading the facts that earn the best possible light for conviction. Mm-hmm. He hasn't had the opportunity to defend himself. And um, oftentimes we get too caught up in wanting to uh, convict somebody before mm-hmm. they stand trial. This is just why they believe he did what he did. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a reasonable doubt explanation to it. All I'm saying is it seems like they got a lot. Yeah. Um, they got cell phone tower uh, evidence. They got a bead on the vehicle that he owned and was the only occupant of that he was driving regularly. They've traced uh, his whereabouts from the beginning of the incident to the time of the incident uh, to right after the incident to the weeks after the incident to his journey back to Pennsylvania. Um, They have DNA evidence and a description, Description which he fits, you know, (laughs) which is kind of unmistakable. Um, That's going to be tough to overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very there's not any chance that this guy's going to get away with an insanity plea because if I'm, if I'm his defense attorney, how are you going to, how are you going to defend this guy, Eliana? What are you going to do? I mean, he's, what's your ideas? He's got a PhD. He's, I mean, he, I guess got admitted to a PhD program. 
um, I don't know. Well, I mean, there he wouldn't be the first PhD student that went insane. Oh well, yeah, Kaczynski. yes, exactly. Kaczynski. Most did even know who that is the Unabomber. He was like a Harvard professor or something like that in mm-hmm. math, and uh, he Keep going. Had, Keep going. What? Yeah, he was a Harvard professor. Uh, he hid out in the woods and built like this shed, and he was making bombs and like bombing the shit out of folks. Yes, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. <laughs> um, so. And, you know, but he was a really intelligent guy, PhD type, genius level intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but there's no indication that this guy has anything wrong with him other than he's just kind of a dick. You know, he was a, he was socially awkward with folks. He would stare at people to make them uncomfortable on purpose. Like he would get bullied all the time uh, by women, particularly. They would throw stuff at him Mm -hmm. and he wanted to you know, have girlfriends and stuff, but mm-hmm. they didn't want to be friends with him. And so, and then we get bullied a lot because he was probably this smallish kid. And so he took a mm-hmm. boxing probably at the YMCA or whatever, not really competitively. And he would want to go and fight people to physically dominate them. Mm-hmm. Probably people that don't know anything about boxing yeah. to make himself feel powerful. There's this guy on the internet, Charlie Zelenoff. I don't know if you've ever heard about, probably haven't, but he's this guy that's a, Never mind the sirens outside. <laughs> We're recording in San Bernardino. <laughs> yeah, please disregard that. Um, there's this guy, Charlie Zelenoff, that uh, is a wannabe um, boxer. Okay. And uh, he's not really a competitive boxer. I think he tried a fight or two and got his ass kicked. But he would go like to the gym and just walk up to random folks. Hey, you want to box? And they're just like, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and he would uh, just hand him a pair of gloves. Like, all right, I guess we're going to spy. We're just, what? Yeah, no, we'll go light. We'll go light. Okay. And so they'd put on the gloves. And then as soon as they're ready to go, whoosh, whoosh, and he'd start wailing on these folks. Like, hey, 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 buddy, what's your problem? And then there's all these videos about him going uh, off on folks like that. I guess that would be an extreme example. I wonder if Mr. Koberger was of that vein. Uh, I have no evidence to suggest. I, it's just what I suspect based on part what I know. Creepy. Yeah, it's just staring at people just to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like, look, guy, what are you looking at, man? What are you mm-hmm. looking at? And he probably wouldn't look at anybody that, you know, was physically intimidating. Mm-hmm. He'd probably stare at of women, course. you know, mm-hmm. or smaller guys or whatever because he wants to feel like he's the mm-hmm. Jedi mind trick uh, making people shiver in their boots, shiver me timbers. But, you know. That's a that's a that's what we know. I, I I got off track, didn't I? I forgot where I was in all of this stuff. Uh, well, we were talking about his. You asked Ileana how would he defend? Oh, how would yeah. she defend? <coughs> yeah. Oh, uh, before I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through the rest of this just to make sure. So they they talk about his profile. You know, he wrote he writes an essay to the the Pullman Police Department uh, that he wrote in his essay that he had an interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. Whatever the fuck that Mm -hmm. means. Uh, Koberger also posted a Reddit survey, which can be found by an open source internet search. There was actually a lot of talk about Mm -hmm. this before any of this came out. Uh, The survey asked for participants to provide information to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. And there was some speculation from Dr. Todd Grande, Grande, who was a psychologist who 
said basically he might have been doing that because he has no ability to empathize or mm-hmm. feel emotions or how that works. And so he's really trying to intellectually understand um, why people feel what they feel and how it makes them react. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But that was uh, one theory of why he made that search. As part of this investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine cellular devices that utilize cellular uh, towers to close to in close proximity in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13, 2022, between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. After determining that Koberger was associated to both the 2015 white Elantra and the 8458 phone, investigators reviewed these search warrant returns. A query of the 8458 phone in these returns did not show the 8458 phone utilizing cell cellular tower resources in close proximity to the King Road residence between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. Based on my training, experience, and conversations with law enforcement officers that specialize in the utilization of cell, cellular telephone records as part of investigations, individuals can either have their cell their cellular telephone at a different location before entering a crime or turn their cell phones off mm-hmm. prior to going to commit a crime, which makes perfect yeah. sense. I mean, I, would, I figured he probably at least knows that. I mean, yeah. basic Forensics 101 understands that if you have a cell with you, they're going to mm-hmm. be able to track where that is. Or any kind so, of electronic device. Yeah, so interesting that uh, he doesn't have his phone between the hours of three and five mm-hmm. when he's committing the murders, uh, but they see his car all over the place. And so that's what they're getting at here with this affidavit. Um, this is done by subjects to either either in an effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that a cellular device associated with them was in a particular area where a crime is committed. I also know that... On numerous occasions, subjects will surveil an area where they mm-hmm. intend to commit a crime prior to the date of this crime. And depending on the circumstances, this could be done a few days before or for several months prior to the commission of a crime. During these types of surveillance, it is possible that an individual would not leave their cellular telephone at a separate location or turn it off since they do not plan to commit the offense mm-hmm. on that particular day. So the guy's not as smart as he thought. Yep. You know, on December 23rd, I applied for and was granted a search warrant for historical phone records between November 12th and November 14th for the 8458 phone held by the phone provider AT&T. And on December 23rd, pursuant to that warrant search, I received records for the phone. And these records indicated that the phone is subscribed to Brian Koberger at an address in Albrightsville. So they got their guy. Mm-hmm. These records also indicate historical cell site location information for the phone. And after receiving this information, I consulted with an FBI special agent that is certified as a member of the cell phone analysis survey team. Members of CAST are certified with the FBI to provide testimony in the field of historical CSLI and are required to pass. So they're qualified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and based off of that, from information provided by CAS, which is who I just described, I was able to determine estimated locations for the phone from November 12th to November 23rd, time period authorized by the court. And on November 13th, 2022, at approximately 2.42 a.m., the 8458 phone was utilized was utilizing cellular resources that provided coverage to 1630 Northeast Valley Road, Apartment G, 201 in Pullman, Washington, 
hereafter the Koberger residence. So he left his cell phone at his house. At approximately 2.47 a.m., uh, the phone utilized cellular resources that provided coverage southeast of Koberger residence, consistent with the 8458 phone, leaving the Koberger residence and traveling south through Pullman, Washington. I spoke too soon. Mm-hmm. I guess you took it. Oh, wait. What time did they say? Oh, 2.47. Uh, so this is consistent with the movement of the white Elantra. And at approximately 2.47 a.m., the phone stops reporting to the network. So maybe he turned it off. Yeah. Uh, which is consistent with either the phone being in an area without coverage, the connection to the network is disabled, unlikely, or that the phone is turned off. The 8458 phone does not report to the network again until around 4.48 a.m. after he's gotten away and he turned his phone back on, um, at which time it utilized cellular resources that provide coverage to ID State Highway 95 south of Moscow, Idaho, near Blaine, Idaho, between 4.50 and 5.26 a.m., the phone utilizes cellular resources that are consistent with the 8458 phone traveling south on ID State Highway 95 to Genesee, Idaho, then traveling west towards he got away. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and below is a depiction of stuff, and then they highlight his route of travel. So that's the gist, right? Um So what do you think about all that? How are you going to defend this guy, Eliana? Mm, I have no idea. That's why I don't know a little criminal. <laughs> oh, my. What is your advice to Mr. Koberger? Okay, let, let me, what about this? You are the, you are the public defender working on the case, mm-hmm. and uh, you're the one that has to go visit him while he's being held in his cell. Um, and uh, where is he at? Moscow, Idaho. Mm-hmm. They said that that prison, by the way, is located underneath the courthouse. Oh, interesting. Which reminds wow. me of, uh, which courthouse would that be here? Mm. Lancaster. How oh, they have it attached to the courthouse like that, although it's off to the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Lancaster. What am I thinking about? The one that's uh, up in... Um, Bakersfield? No, not Bakersfield. Westbound? No. The one that's... Southwest? The south, not... Is it the southwest? Southwest uh, The one that's up by Marietta. Temecula. Yeah. Yeah. That's what. That's the one I was thinking. I was like, wait, the Marietta has that one? too? I don't think you've ever been there. Have you been there? I have been to Marietta, the criminal court. Yeah, and the criminal court, you know, they have that building right there, the, 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 the oh, jail. Yeah, it's true. true. The jail is like... I, I just don't... never really noticed. Funny story about that place. <laughs> it's it's um, right next to it. It's in the front. Like, I always see the sign, like, because when you go into the parking lot, like, there's the sign both for both, but I just never really paid much attention. I just mm-hmm. was going into the court. <laughs> So, funny story about that place. I uh, once was going there to um, interview a potential client mm-hmm. that was Spanish-speaking only. I had to take with me a translator, mm-hmm. and uh, she was a paralegal at the place where you and I used to work. Mm-hmm. And um, funny thing, you know, when you go in and you do an attorney uh, visit with your clients, mm-hmm. they check your ID and, and run your name through their database. Mm-hmm. And so they run hers because she's going there to assist as the paralegal. And... Um, Something popped up on her system and uh, they kicked us all out, except everybody out, except for her. And there's like, I want to say maybe a dozen people in there just Mm -hmm. going there to visit, visit relatives or whatever. They locked the doors and I watched them place her in handcuffs and she was arrested. Turns out she had an arrest warrant for uh, something from way back. Who knows when? Oh my God. And so I was going to do a jail visit for that potential client. 
I ended up having to do a jail visit for her. Mm-hmm. And then I go in there. I'm like, what in the fuck happened? <laughs> what did you do? Uh, oh, but my. It, uh, it, it, it turns out it wasn't actually uh, her, uh, her, well, I don't remember the specifics. Mm-hmm. I just remember that whatever she was charged with, she was, uh, the case was dismissed. Okay. And so it wasn't a big deal. But she had a warrant. She didn't know she had a warrant. <laughs> and uh, that, well, you know, shit happens. Mm-hmm. But going back, uh, so this case here in... Um, in Moscow, Idaho, mm-hmm. the jailhouse is underneath the courthouse, which has got to be, I can only imagine how stuffy it is. I know yeah. that he's being held in solitary confinement, so by himself. Mm-hmm. How bad does it need to be for you to be held in solitary confinement? Well, I think it, in this case, it's probably just a safety issue, mm-hmm. and probably also it may be because they don't have any room other, anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, he happens to be a high-profile suspect, mm-hmm. and so... Uh, somebody wants to get their name out there that yep. they don't have anything to lose. Screw it. I'm going to go uh, shiv this guy. Mm-hmm. And it, so it, it could be strictly for his protection. And mind you, it's not like he's sitting in a state penitentiary anywhere. It's literally a county jail. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's small time. He's not in there with hardened criminals that have been convicted and are there sent to you know spend life in prison. Mm-hmm. There are people that are doing short time, meaning probably less than a year or being transferred here and there. And anyway, it, it, it sort it, it, it works. Pretty much like that. So the reason why he's in solitary is for no other reason. My, I suspect, is probably just for his protection. Um, he shows up to court today, and he's assigned as public defender. So again, I say, Eliana, you've been assigned this case, and um, you've just read the probable cause affidavit, and you have to go through it with him. What are you going to tell? What are you going to tell Mr. Koberger? He's screwed. Well, that doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't help his cause. You say it in a prettier way, right? Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Brian, how you doing? This is, I'm attorney Omar Serrato. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the guy that's representing you. Mm-hmm. And um, I have an idea of what they're saying that you did. Mm-hmm. And I know that you do too. And I know that this is high profile. So I need to hear it from you. Mm-hmm. This is what they're saying that you did. And I would run through all of the probable cause. Um, I would go through him about how he appears to have been identified at the Mm -hmm. scene by one of the survivors. I would have specific questions about that. Mm -hmm. I would have questions about what were were you doing driving in the area around that time? You own this car. I mean, I checked myself. I saw Mm -hmm. the records. You're the owner of the vehicle. So how do you explain your car being there if you weren't the one Mm -hmm. that was driving there? All your family lives in Pennsylvania. You're the only person living here in Washington, and you live alone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all this other stuff about him being the sole occupant and these other things. Mm-hmm. Your cell phone was uh, found to have been around the same time as where the car was at the at the scene. They got your DNA evidence. Brian, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Some attorneys might take a different approach. I don't want to know what you did. This is the evidence they have on you, but I have the, there's some holes in the case. I think we could attack them here and here or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um Honestly, probably from that conversation, I think that you're probably trying to probe for whether or not there is anything mentally unstable with the guy. Of course. Because one of my mentors once told me that, you know, when you get these police reports, because I used to have a certain Mm -hmm. approach. It's like, okay, well, obviously the police report is bullshit, you know, because I'm Mm -hmm. of the mindset. Mm -hmm. I got to defend my client. And uh, a, a really good criminal defense attorney once told me, no. No, this, they're not bullshit. That's mm-hmm. the evidence they have against them. It's not going to be bullshit to the jury. Mm-hmm. So you take those, uh, the, the, the police reports um, as if they are 
you know, the Bible. They are the facts of the case. And that's where you build your defenses and poking holes in those investigations. Well, why didn't the, why didn't the police uh, look at these other cell phones that were also in the area? Why didn't they look at this other car that was circling around that happens to also have been uh, found on surveillance mm-hmm. footage? And that's the kind of things that you're looking for as a defense attorney, just mm-hmm. anything to create doubt. It's like, yeah, his car was there too, but so were these other two. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that the road was blocked, you know, miles down the road, and he couldn't find a good way to get out, and he was sort of lost mm-hmm. in his GPS cell footage. And I'm making shit up right now. I'm just trying to look no, at yeah, any but kind that's of. That's usually uh, um, how it goes. Just taking a loophole and like elaborating. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. sort of like what we saw in Casey Anthony. Exactly. Oh, yes. it could have been an abduction. It could have been a drowning. Oh, she was molested, and so she's a victim, and all this yeah, stuff, like, and creating all of this distraction and chloroform. She couldn't have made the chloroform mm-hmm. because there wasn't any found in the. You know, just shifting the issue. The only mm-hmm. way, the the main way that defense attorneys attack criminal cases that are built against their clients is by attacking the investigation. Mm-hmm which is why it is so vitally important and why you've seen the investigators in this case go so far out of their Mm -hmm. way to be tight-lipped about the information, to not jump to conclusions. Look, they had this information about him way back in November. Mm -hmm. They could have probably arrested him back in November. But the second, I mean, the cat's out of the bag now. Everybody knows who Brian Koberger is. The second that they let that information out, the investigation is going to be compromised. I mean, at the same time, they're trying to pull any information from anything and everywhere, tip lines, mm-hmm. uh, bulletin boards, and things of that nature to try to get more information to build their case. The second that you name a suspect, well, people stop looking. Mm-hmm. Their focus change, changes. And even now, there's like, <laughs> gosh, I, I love the internet and I hate the internet because <laughs> you got these clowns out there that are spouting off stuff that they have no idea. And you know what? If you're looking for credible evidence or credible information about what's going on with uh, the uh, Koberger investigation and the investigation associated with these murders, and you get tired of all of the same people saying all of the same stuff, the people saying all the same stuff is probably reporting what's out there. Mm -hmm. You should know that there is a gag order in this case, meaning that neither attorney from either side Mm -hmm. or any investigator or member of law enforcement or anybody with any inside knowledge whatsoever Mm -hmm. is allowed to mention or leak or release Mm -hmm. anything about the case, meaning that anything that deviates from what has actually been released is pure speculation at best. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to speculate, but like that TikTok lady, the psychic lady that was saying, oh, was definitely a college professor that's now being sued for defamation. You get people in trouble that way. (laughs) There's literally this TikTok uh, publisher... I don't know if you call him publisher. What would you call a TikToker? Um, TikToker, that's it. Yeah, a TikToker. user. A content creator. You know, a TikTok content creator. Yeah. Content creator. She's a psychic. And uh, her psychic powers, um, I guess, through the conduit of uh, tarot cards, uh, indicated that we should really be looking at this very specific college professor. Oh, and when they called her out on it, when they called her out on it, it was like, uh, I don't give a shit what you guys say. And mm-hmm. she doubles down. My special powers have indicated that it's this college professor, and she's the one. And if I'm wrong, then she's going to sue, and she's going to win in court. Well, guess what? She sued. And so she's going to lose it. Well, the professor's going to Mm -hmm. win. This TikToker's in a lot of trouble. Who knows what's going to happen with that? And I mean, she's probably small time. I'd I'd imagine Mm -hmm. she she didn't look much older than like a young adult. Lower 20s, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm spec. I don't want to say anything like that. But you have a lot of people that are putting out false information. There's people uh, throwing out these theories that, oh, he's posting all this stuff on Reddit to uh, 
throw off the investigation. Nobody, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Reddit. People just want to get famous somehow. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's people that are trying to uh, just, they're not trying to mislead the public. They're just Mm -hmm. trying to come at it with a a special angle. So if you're listening to any of these content creators and they're giving you anything other than what was Mm -hmm. released, they're probably making it up. Mm-hmm. And it's fine to make stuff up through speculation. I mean, or come up with alternate theories. But if they're trying to pass it off as truth, that's where mm-hmm. you get in trouble. Like the psychic lady on TikTok, yeah. that poor guy in the hoodie, he could have just been some guy. You know what? Mm-hmm. Uh, the there's you guys know about the guy in the hoodie, right? So he was the one in the surveillance footage that was mm-hmm. uh, streamed on Twitch, where he was seen, and he's just kind of standing there minding his own business. Mm-hmm. Um, in the background, and then you see Maddie and Kaylee mm-hmm. kind of carrying on with each other, and he may be looking at, I don't know, if I didn't know any better, he's just kind of standing around mm-hmm. at 1.30 in the morning, as college students do. Maybe he was kind of a little drunk. Maybe he's trying to, like, catch us. He's feeling a little dizzy. Yeah. <laughs> he's just trying to walk it off, get some fresh air. He talks to this guy in a beard, um, mentions he might have been checking out the girls. Maybe mm-hmm. he was checking out the girls, but, hey, that doesn't make him a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, the police talked to, uh, the bearded guy and they talked to him directly. And the bearded guy says, I don't know. It looked like, seemed like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, um, thought that maybe he was concerned about whether or not the girls were going to get home safe. Maybe they were mm-hmm. acting a little inebriated, yeah. which is possible if they're trying to call ex-boyfriends at three in the morning, you know, <laughs> together in the same bed six times mm-hmm. for the one. And then three times for the other as college students do. And a lot of people do, um, I don't know. But that guy was labeled as a murderer long before any of this happened, mm-hmm. right uh, shortly after the incidents. And that uh, footage has been circulating in the Internet for a long time now. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the case. That's that's that is the update. What do you girls think of that? I want to see more. Wanna oh, you will. We're going to be following this case <laughs> yes. to its conclusion. This is just the very beginning. Oh, it's the very beginning. Hopefully they televised the trial if it goes to trial. Because you oh. were going to mention something about that. What do you think? Why do you think it's going to go to trial? Well, I, my my initial theory was that maybe it won't. Maybe uh-huh. it'll be a situation uh, like uh, the one guy that murdered his family, where he yeah. just entered a plea mm-hmm. without going to trial because he didn't want to drag everybody through mm-hmm. it. Um, part of his psychological profile was. Um, he wanted to do something that let the world know that he was big and powerful. Oh yeah, then and it's dangerous. Going to He's and not so take <laughs> he wanted the attention. Yes, of course. And although he really did want to get away with it, mm-hmm. the fact that it's going to trial and everybody's talking with him, this is like a national story. Um, he's just as thrilled by that idea, mm-hmm. and he's looking forward to being the subject of national conversation for the months to come. Mm-hmm. And so, that makes sense. Yeah, why end it now? You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's already done it. Might as well milk it for all it's worth, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was some indication like that. But my question, I have a 16-year-old daughter who's about to go to college pretty soon, a three- and a two-year-old. I mean, my wife is not college age, but she's mm-hmm. small-ish, you know. Uh, you girls are small-ish. Mm-hmm. And there's creepy guys out there let me be clear. There's creepy girls out there too. <laughs> There's lots of creepy girls out there. The difference is whenever I'm, I'm encountered with a creepy female, I don't feel physically threatened by them. Mm-hmm. Or if they were to show up in my house with a knife and I have, a, if, if I have any kind of a chance, I think I'm going to be okay. Or I feel like maybe I'm wrong. You never know. <laughs> 
but does this case, because here, here's the indication. Here's the indication. Here's what's speculated, that this guy drew some connection to these girls, mm-hmm. 20, 21 years old, maybe passing them on the streets. Maybe he found them on social media. Maybe he saw them at the grocery store. Maybe he saw them at the corner club. Um, and it he perceived in his sick, twisted mind that they rejected him somehow. Mm. And they probably didn't know who the hell that guy was. Mm. Maybe he didn't even go and say hi to them. Or uh, maybe he did, but they weren't, like, they've been getting hit on by guys all night. And he's just one of mm-hmm. the 200 others that were uh, also doing the same. And uh, his perceived slight led to their murders. How does it make you girls feel knowing that those kinds of things happen? That's scary. <laughs> it's very scary. Yes. I mean, and this isn't anything new no, to exactly. either of you. It's mm-hmm. just this. It's, it's just the reality of it. I think it's a wake-up call. I mean, I don't want to say for men, but mm-hmm. it's just like I think that oftentimes for myself, mm-hmm. I forget um, the fragility of life and the reality that most women are physically inferior to the majority of men. Mm-hmm. And I'm not by any means saying... Uh, all because you know if Ronda Rousey came in here and wanted to uh, wrestle my ass, I'm sure <laughs> she would do okay, right? But you know that's one of how, how many, you know. Mm-hmm. And the the reality is that most women, when they walk out with their friends, if they're in a group of females, uh, you could encounter one of these guys, and um, they could follow you to your house. They could follow you in a car. Um, gosh, my wife, not too long ago was just trying to get to her, uh, drop off the girls at daycare, mm-hmm. and there was some hobo trying to hit on her at, like, 8 in the morning. Why? And, um, you know, this homeless guy with nothing to lose, mm-hmm. you know, who knows where he is, who knows what kind of diseases the guy was walking around carrying with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all of the peoples, I guess they saw him on surveillance, and mm-hmm. so all of these females, like, clucking hands came in, hey, hey, get away from her. And, you know, <laughs> like, four, five, six yeah. daycare people, and they shoot him away, but... She's got our our children in the car mm-hmm. in the in the car seats, and you know, um, it's scary, it's terrifying, and yes. so the reality is, whether or not Koberger is guilty, whether he whether he's innocent, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come, we're gonna get all of the details in due time, mm-hmm. but just for all of the, for everybody out there, just be aware of your surroundings, mm-hmm. lock your freaking doors. I was gonna ask, like, do we know how he got into the house? Well, there's no signs of forced entry. So it was so probably the door open. Was open. Not only that, okay, so there's no signs of force entry. And all of the rooms had individual padlocks on them, meaning mm-hmm. they could lock mm-hmm. and you could unlock it with like a combination, mm-hmm. like a secret four-digit yes. pin or whatever. But how often are you going to really do that for with, with people that you're living with and that you know? Like mm-hmm. how oftentimes when you were living in a college dorm did you go barging in on your roommate mm-hmm. without knocking? People, most people... Most of uh, most families don't do that to mm-hmm. each other, yeah. and so it's unlikely that. Well, we know that none of their. Do- I don't. Well, I don't know that. I don't know that none of their doors were locked. I just know that there was no signs of forced entry, mm-hmm. and the area where that house was situated on the base of a hill, mm-hmm. in these trees, in this wooded area, would provide significant cover if the guy mm-hmm. was trying to park maybe up the hill somewhere and make his way down the shrubbery mm-hmm. into the sliding glass door without being seen or having it be weird uh, or causing much of a scene and then mm-hmm. go out the same way to the same cover and mm-hmm. no, nobody would be any the wiser for it. 
I don't know if that's officially what happened. I just know I've speculated based on the layout of the house. Yeah. Well, if there's no forged entry, like you said, that means the door was open. And I've actually had this, I live with my brother. I've actually always had this problem with him because the mm -hmm. first thing I do every single time I get to my house is lock all of my doors. I have a sliding door that connects yeah. to my backyard. My brother always leaves it unlocked. Yeah, you can't do that. Not, especially, I mean... Not just for him, but when you got women in the house, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I live with only women, you know, I'm yes. a, a house full of women. And so my doors, because I had the same issue because I'm a guy. Guys don't normally lock no, doors exactly. because, but it ain't just you living in the house, you know, and mm -hmm. when you're gone, it's just them. And so on our doors, we have uh, the doors automatically lock. That's good. Mm -hmm. Every 10 seconds. So somebody forgets. Mm -hmm. Not only that, I got small children that are trying to open yes. the doors and get, get out of the house. And, <laughs> and so twofold, but we also have alarm systems. So when a door does open, there's mm -hmm. a little sound that goes off mm -hmm. attached to all of the rooms. So I know when people are coming and going, mm -hmm. um, but that's just, I want the people in my house to feel safe mm -hmm. and college students are by nature not all that bright. Yeah. I mean, they're bright enough to get into college, <laughs> yeah. but as far as life experience. <laughs> they're barely getting to it. Oh, gosh. There's been mornings I remember when I was in college where I would wake up and the door was wide freaking open because mm -hmm. I either forgot to shut the door, which would be weird, or the, the wind knocked it open. But I didn't lock the door. I don't know. But I've, I've had those situations. I was, mm -hmm. I was no different than any the typical of college course. guy. Right. Um, when you're, so, like, late from work or from school getting out and it's dark. Women generally run mm. to their car, like run, run. Men With the keys take in the hand, exactly. Spray. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I'm, how many times have I walked you to your car because it's like dark outside and you want to go out there? You are the security person in the building. I've never ever mm -hmm. had that concern. I've never felt unsafe walking to my house, mm -hmm. despite you know the surroundings where we're staying. And so, mm -hmm. but I'm also a guy, and so women have this. I think that a lot of people don't understand. Well, a lot of men don't understand that mm -hmm. the real fear. Of um, when women are when women are walking by themselves or even just amongst themselves mm -hmm. about the dangers that are out there because men like the Brian Koberger types mm -hmm. uh, could attach themselves somehow and through a figment of their imagination and uh, decide that you have slighted them because mm -hmm. you didn't respond to their telekinetic uh, mm -hmm. invitation to date them and mm -hmm. as a result um, I'm going to murder four people with a Rambo style knife as they sleep in their beds in the sleepy town of Moscow, Idaho, the safest college town probably in America prior to all of these incidents okay. taking place. So for right now, that is what we know about, uh, that's the latest update on the Koberger case. I don't even want to call it the Koberger case. All right. It's, it's still mm -hmm. the Idaho student college student mm -hmm. case. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to call it. I mean, people are are getting offended by what we're calling it. There's been some people calling it the uh, Moscow Four. It's like, that's offensive to the four victims. Yeah. I'm like, how? I mean, um, just people got loosen up. Jesus Christ <laughs> with all of that. Um, Nobody wants to call it anything. It was a horrible thing that happened. It's just something that happened. I'm going to yeah. call it the Koberger case because he's the okay. suspect. He's the one suspected of, of, of committing the murders and he's mm -hmm. now facing charges. So, I mean, it's, it's what it is. It's the Koberger case. If he was a, well, it doesn't matter. That's what it is. Um, Melissa, you wanted to talk about something. About my favorite thing, about which one? My favorite singer's current court case or Balenciaga? You choose. <laughs> I don't want to talk about any of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
We've actually been going for like an hour and a half, and um, we're running out of time. Uh, but with that, any closing thoughts from you, Melissa, about anything we talked about today? Or anything? You could talk about anything. I mean, Free reign. In general, the first thing I thought when we sat down and I saw the topic of the podcast was another shooting or another murder. <laughs> and it, I nearly hit it like, why the heck am I thinking this way? Like, it should shock me. It's not shocking at this point. It's just like it has become so common to see this kinds of things happen like in college campuses. Like, for example, as soon as you mentioned this, the first thing I thought was what happened with Ted Bundy when he I think it was like a sorority house in Florida. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are comparing this to Ted Bundy. Exactly. So that was the first the first thing I thought. And it's sad that these kind of outcomes are happening More and more and more and more in the United States, like statewide, nationwide. That was the first, that was like the first thing that popped into my mind. How come this has become in our society? That we're like, oh, another case or, oh, another shooting. Oh, another murder. Oh, like we don't get shocked anymore. Well, I'd hate to break it to you, Melissa, but this is not anything new. This has been going on. I mean, you remember Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. 1888, England? Same kind of thing where he murdered four women brutally in a very surgical kind of way. And um, there's a lot of cases that go out. Look, we are human beings and we're living in a society that is run by human beings. And uh, we are deeply flawed as individuals. And there's a lot of people with mental illness and mental illness oftentimes leads to these kinds of crimes. And if you try to make sense of it as a sane person without any mental illness or um, with all of your faculties intact, it's not going to make sense. You just have to understand that there are anomalies out there that are anomalies for exactly that reason. They don't fit normal behavior. They stand out. And when they occur, they're either beautiful or they're ugly. But they're something. They're labeled something. And when they happen, you know, however you view them, they're going to draw attention. And this was today's anomaly Next week, there could be a different one. Um, there could be crimes better or, or, or worse or just the same, but they're not going to stop. No. But don't be under the illusion that this is uh, anything out of the ordinary. This is common practice uh, for humans, human beings as a society. And I'm going to get off my soapbox with that rant. <laughs> but um, that was all. <laughs> Eliana, did you have anything to add? Just to the. I'm going to probably edit so much of that. (laughs) Just to the college students and the young adults. Like, I know sometimes, like, the parents are nagging and saying, do this and do that. And you think your parents are exaggerating. Just take your precautions. Like, something so simple as closing or locking a a door could have prevented probably, I mean, I don't know, I'm speculating, but it could have prevented this guy going in the house if that's how he got there. So, yeah. Yeah, just two cents. Listen to your parents. Listen to your parents. (laughs) Listen to your dads, your moms. Do not walk around at 3 Mm a.m. by yourself. Lock your freaking doors. Mm -hmm. There's no no harm. It's the easiest way to protect yourself. I can't tell you how many cases I heard about. I heard about these people trying to break into houses, and they just go house to house looking Mm -hmm. for one door that's unlocked. Mm -hmm. And um, you know what? I once had my car broken into. And it was literally this guy just 
testing the doors of all the cars going around at semi-surveillance. I forgot to lock my door, and I just had all my shit taken out of there. But the joke was on him. I didn't have anything in there, so... I hope I hope it was worth it. Well, during law school, I remember that that happened to a friend, and all they took was the law school books. I'm like, well, that guy is going to need oh, them. <laughs> that actually happened to me in law school, too. Um, Those are expensive. <laughs> yeah, I jacked my law school book. I had to buy it again. It was a $200 mm-hmm. torts book. Yep. I would have cried. But that was the only thing that they took, like, I guess are worth money, but it's like, really? Well, I guess now he's going to learn more about uh, products liability, yes. I guess. No. Let's just say it's good that they took the books and not, for example, an outline. He would have yeah. cried. Oh, well, those are computerized exactly, nowadays, yeah. you know, in the cloud, even the, mm-hmm. even back then, I think. Um, well, uh, ladies, it was a pleasure having you guys back here in studio. And um, we're definitely going to be following this case. Yes, There's also the, uh, the, the Garcia case that I want to cover about uh, the murder on set. Is it Andy Garcia? Who's the older Garcia? You know what I'm talking about? Not Andy Garcia. Or is it Andy Garcia? I don't think it's that. I know who you're talking about because it's about the case that they were shooting a movie and yeah. and he accidentally uh, accidentally shot killed, somebody. like a producer or something. Oh, yes. Because he but, thought it was a blank. Yeah, it's like a bunch of brother or family that are actors. I just, I just don't remember his name, but yeah, I know which one you're talking about. It was about. live ammunition that somehow mm-hmm. got mixed in with the blanks mm-hmm. and he was counter suing yeah. uh, the production company because mm-hmm. what are you guys doing putting live ammunition mm-hmm. where the blanks are supposed to be? And so, um, but she has a really valid point. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll cover that case next week. Um, but we're definitely going to be following the developments as yeah. they come out on this case. And um, with that, if you've made it all the way and listened to us for this long, thank you so much for listening. Um, as always, uh, we appreciate you listening. If you're new to the show, please don't forget to uh, subscribe to the channel and ring the little bell. <laughs> I read somewhere I'm supposed to say that because okay. you don't like, get share, and subscribe with your friends. All of that shit. Mm-hmm. At any rate, we will see you guys next week. Um, everybody, uh, be safe out there. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care.